You're listening to a Broadmoor Podcast production. In today's message, our next-gen pastor, Sean Selman, preaches from Romans chapter 13 as we continue in our series through the book of Romans. This passage deals with how the believer should submit to authority. As we listen, our prayer is that we will be both encouraged and challenged. Good morning, church. Oh, that was great. Nobody's tired from spring break, right? Is that good? Um, So uh, today we have quite a passage to talk about, right? Um, It's one that when we read it, we kind of look at and we go, oh, wow, I have so many opinions about that. And uh, I don't know if you remember a couple of weeks ago, um, Josh was kind of reminding us of you know, what it, what it takes to be obedient to God's word. And sometimes we need a little encouragement. And uh, he gave us an, an illustration of his daughter uh, moving from like basically weekday preschool to his office. And um, I don't know if you remember this, but basically she began to say that some things didn't work and she couldn't get there, right? And so I was like, Josh, you gave me a perfect out for today because as I read this passage of scripture and I see the difficulty of it, what I want to do is come to this podium and go, my feet don't work, my ears don't work, my mouth doesn't work, right? I mean, when we read passages like this, They usually stir something inside of us because we have an idea of maybe how Paul should have said it, right? We'll see things like this and go, Paul, did did you really say that? Or did you have to say it like that? Or or Paul, what about this, Paul? Or or what about that, Paul? And and we'll, we'll begin asking all of these questions about a passage of Scripture to find all the ways that we can get out of obeying the Word, Basically, we look for all the exceptions. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, when I came to this passage of Scripture, when I started reading it, it brought about all kinds of feelings in me, right? I have my own thoughts. I have my own ideas about government and about politics and about how we're to live as American citizens, right? And it began to stir things inside of me, but but when I have those kinds of thoughts that feel like they're competing with Scripture, it's typically a sign to me that the Holy Spirit is wanting to use the truth to change the way that I think, the way that I see, the way that I obey, the way that I live out this Word. He wants to change my heart and my life. So if that is the case, when I think about passages like this, I think there's some important things that we need to hold on to as we approach them, as we study them, as we teach them, as we preach them. We need to be be aware of all the feelings that it brings about in us. And ultimately, here's as we look at this together today, here's what I want. And what I desire for us as the family of God, a united family of faith, that despite what we think and what we feel, what our lens may be, what our preferences may be, my prayer is that all of us, including myself in this room, would not miss 
the truth that God is trying to communicate to us. Ultimately, here's what we desire. We want the truth of God's word to inform and shape our feelings and our thoughts, not allowing our feelings and thoughts to shape the truth of God's word. In this series throughout Romans, you've heard Josh bring up the word. It's a, it's a big money word in seminary, right? It's hermeneutics, right? It's, it's a mouthful to say. Hermeneutics. Let me give you a better definition instead of just saying hermeneutics. Literally, hermeneutics is the practice of. In other words, you have to, you have to do something in this. You have to put it, you have to do it over and over again. You have to put it into practice. It's the practice of interpreting Scripture. And there's some key things to always remember when we approach God's Word and we look at passages, especially passages that may bring up differing feelings or are troublesome. The first one is this. The first is context. What's actually happening during this time and who are the people that the author is writing to? And what else has he written? Second, what is the intended meaning of the passage to that particular group of people in that setting? Third, what is the principle that we can draw from the passage and from the surrounding text? And then finally... How does that principle apply to us as we think about what we believe, how we act, how we live out this truth? I think this is so important as we look at Romans chapter 13 today. So first, context. We we cannot forget that, that Paul is writing to the church in Rome. A church that is made up both of Jewish and Gentile believers. We've talked about this extensively. We talk about the belief systems that come from the Jewish way and from Gentile worship and how those ideas begin to collide and come into conflict with one another. These things in and of themselves were creating difficulty within the church. But now we take that that church and we set it in Rome inside of a Uh, an interesting political climate. We see a church that's possibly struggling with the rule of Roman emperors. Emperors that would demand that people bow down and worship them and treat them as if they were a god. A church that very well may be missing some of its members because we know that prior to Paul writing Romans, Claudius the emperor had expelled a large group of Jews from Rome because of an unrest that was growing among the citizens of Rome. They even believed that very possibly this unrest came from a dispute over taxation of the people. Let's not forget that. It's going to come up later in our passage. We also know around this time, there's a new emperor that has been seated. His name is Nero. And while Nero was kind of... um, not so maniacal, maniac, I don't, can't even say that. He was, he was a maniac, right, later on. But, but not so much so early in his rule. He seemed like a fun emperor, but things went south quickly. He was bringing a whole new dimension to Roman rule. We, we also know that during this time, there were groups of Jewish zealots living in Rome. 
Now, zealots were these uh, Jews that had this passion and desire to take control of the political system. They were the ones that said that God is the only ruler, right? And they wanted to overthrow, but not only overthrow, they wanted to destroy the evil entity of Rome as the governing power in the region. They did all these things in the name of God. And all of these things led to political unrest. Even shortly after the letter of Romans is written, we'll find that a group of religious zealots actually rise up in Rome and are crushed by the Roman government as they rebelled. There's a lot going on in Rome. Politically, culturally, socially, within the church, among all sorts of different groups of people. But also before we begin, let's also be reminded of the context that we find Paul's writing. Let's be reminded of what he wrote previously at the end of chapter 12, right? Romans chapter 12, 14 through 21. I won't go back and read all that, but it would do you a service to read that before you read 13 because it's there that Paul describes to the believer what it looks like for one who calls himself a Christian to display genuine or authentic love. First to their brothers and sisters in Christ, but then to those that are outside the family of faith. Now, what Paul does over the next several chapters is he takes all of those principles about genuine, authentic love, and he begins to bring them to bear on specific situations, situations that would be familiar to the Christians there in the church of Rome. And when it came out to to living this out, what does it look like in those practical, everyday situations where they get the opportunity to show genuine love. And the very first one is how they carry themselves civilly within the government state that they find themselves in. So let's jump in. Verse one, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Well, there's the hot button right there, right? Government. Government and politics is something that none of us are really comfortable talking about, even within the church. Like we know that even in this congregation right here, we're sitting with people who have different feelings and different beliefs when it comes to even our government, In fact, in America today, we have a tornado of opinions when it comes to our political situation. And this is where we have to be guarded. We have to remind ourselves and be careful to remember, Paul is not writing to the Western American culture. He's not writing to a group of people that are American. In fact, you have two very different political systems. In America, we have processes and systems in place to create laws, to elect officials, to even carry out judgment. We have a means as citizens to operate within, inside of that system to voice our opinions and to say what we think. That was not the case in Rome. 
In fact, we're going to find that, that as the church moves along, one, we see Claudius expelled a bunch of people. Just get out of here. I don't want to hear anything from you. Later on, we're going to find that Nero takes believers who proclaim Christ as Lord and he has them crucified on stakes, burned with tar to light his parties in the garden. This was not what we are experiencing today. In many ways, it's way more heinous. In many ways, it's unlike anything we've ever seen. But with that in mind, let's not dismiss the passage and say, well, Paul's not writing to us, so it doesn't apply to us. Let's make sure we understand the context that this audience is receiving the message in so that we better understand the weight and the gravity as well as the implications that Paul is calling them to and ultimately what we should take from this passage for us. So first, Paul says everyone. All should be subject to governing authorities. Paul's not excusing anyone from this commandment. In fact, this idea of all covers not only the believers in Rome, he's also speaking to the unbelievers in Rome. He's saying if you live in Rome, you need to be subject to the governing authorities. He also is not specific about Rome, so he's covering anyone who lives in any state to be subject to governing authorities. If I think about that, then that applies to us as well. If we take that truth and we pull it out, then we should be subject to governing authorities. Now, I also think it's important to make a distinction in the verb that Paul uses here, to be subject to. This is not the same word as obey. In other words, we we need to understand that Paul is not saying to the people, you have to do everything that the governing authorities say. Think about this. The emperors were calling for worship of themselves as God. As believers, they were going, no, we're not going to do that. We're not going to worship the emperor. We're going to worship the one true God. So Paul's not saying you do exactly what they say, but you must be subject to them. What do we mean by this? Well, well, to obey is to do everything exactly as the rule states. To do what someone says or commands. To be subject to means to understand positionally where you stand in power. To be subject to someone is to understand that they have power or authority over you And they can carry out any needed consequences based on whether you've submitted to their authority or not. I think this warrants a little bit of an excursion into some Old Testament and New Testament passages. Some that should be very familiar to us if we grew up in the church. If you are in Kid Town or maybe in the student ministry here, you've probably heard these passages preached through. I believe in student ministry this morning, you're actually going to cover one of them. But we find two instances in the Old Testament that when Paul says, be subject to governing authorities, it would be one of those things that come to bear in the minds of the Jewish believers. It's found in Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 through 18. Some of you know it as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the fiery furnace, right? How many of you have heard that story, right? 
It's a great, it's a great picture of what it means not to obey, but to be subject to. In, in this instance, listen, we find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are Jewish people, people who worship the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God that we worship. They find themselves in a foreign culture where a king, King Nebuchadnezzar, in that culture, decides that he's going to form this giant image of himself. And when the horns sound and the music plays, everyone in the kingdom should bow down to worship this idol of Nebuchadnezzar as God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went, there's no way. We cannot disobey the authority of our God, our one true God. The God who told us not to have any other idols, not to worship any other gods but him. And so they disobey the commandments of the king. However, when they stand before the king, they basically look at King Nebuchadnezzar and say, King, do what you must do. You throw us in the fiery furnace. We're going to be subject to you because you sit in a place of authority. We will not obey what you said, but we will be subject to your consequences because you sit in a place of power over us. And we will let our God, who sits in a place of power over you, determine the outcome. We see another instance. Daniel, in the same country in Babylon, there's a 30-day period that the government there had decided that no one should make a petition to any other God or any other authority other than the king for the next 30 days. But what we find is Daniel continues to make petitions before his God, for the God that we serve. He continues to pray to him every day, not privately, but publicly by throwing open his windows for all to see. Daniel does not obey the king's command, but he's subject to the injunction put in place by the government. And even the king who wants to protect and rescue Daniel is subject to his own law. And because of Daniel's disobedience, Daniel becomes subject to the authority of the government by saying, Put me in the lion's den. Let me give you another one, a little closer to when Paul writes. It's in the New Testament. Peter and John heal a man, causes a stir in the city, and they're brought before the Jewish council. And I think it's important to note that Scripture tells us that Peter speaks and he is full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's not being led by his own feelings, his own preferences, but he's being driven by the Spirit of God in line with the truth of God. And in the hearing, the council finally tells them, you must stop preaching the name of Jesus. Peter and John cannot be obedient to this command. But they are subject to the authorities. And Peter and John calls for them to judge whether or not they are right to listen to God or man. Literally, Peter and John are telling the council, do what you must do, but we will continue to preach. We will be subject to your authority. 
in every one of these cases, we see this picture of obedience versus being subject to. Understanding that the people in power had power over them, but ultimately they recognized something else, that God was the ultimate authority, that God was sovereign above all things, that God was in control of all things, that there was no greater authority than God himself, which plays into the next verse. Verse 2, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Now, we need to make sure we understand a progression here in the sentence. Paul does not use a specific pronoun here like he used in the first one where he said all or everyone. In fact, the subject is wrapped up in the verb, and the verb is used three times. And here's literally how we can read it. It literally states those who resist authority, those who resist what God has appointed, those who resist will incur judgment. Look, this, this statement that Paul writes is an incredible reminder of who the ultimate authority is. It is God who sits over all things. This idea of God being in control and him being sovereign, it actually helps us. See, when people are placed in positions of power, the intent by God is never to cause chaos, but God creates government to to bring about order in the world around them. When this gets out of line with the will of God and the purposes of God, then those people will be held accountable for their actions. Ultimately, it will be God who holds them accountable. You see, the statement that Paul writes is as much for those who are in authority as well as those who are subject to authority. That ultimately, God is in control and he is the one that has put things in place. And God's purpose is to have structured authority to create order amidst the chaos of this world. Which leads us into verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 says, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, when you read these two verses, you can inject all kinds of things. You can go, well, you're telling me that someone evil is God's servant. I'm telling you that someone evil is still under the control of God. He is in control. That person is not in control. God is in control. God is sovereign. God is above all things. God is doing something. And I don't want us to read too much into this. If we want to simply say it, what what Paul is writing is governing authorities are put in place by God to preserve order. Just like we've said. As a result, if we look at verses 3 and 4, there are consequences to both good and to bad actions. There will be a judgment for actions done according to the law. There will be actions taken for actions taken against the law, right? There will be judgment for both righteous and evil actions. Actions for the law, actions against the law. Another way to look at it is this. 
through the lens of the gospel. See, everything that God creates, everything that God puts into being, everything that God institutes is a picture to point us back to the gospel. When we look through the gospel, here's what we come to understand. We deserve God's wrath or punishment because of our evil actions, because of sin. But however, righteousness deserves God's approval. God institutes government not to say that, but to demonstrate that. Now things get all out of whack because of our sinfulness. But ultimately, according to the gospel, sin or evil actions deserve God's judgment or God's wrath. Righteousness deserves God's approval. Now, what we also understand because of Paul's writings all throughout Romans, that none of us are righteous. None of us do right actions. And we understand that the only way to appear before God as righteous is through Jesus Christ. But once again, it's a reminder that when God establishes or institutes certain systems in this world, it is always to display a facet of the gospel to his creation. Everything for the glory of God. The problem comes in when because of man's sinfulness and broken state, we begin to mar and distort all things created and instituted by God. Therefore, as Christians, we're to do something by living in such a way that draws people's attention back to the glory of God and not away from it. Therefore, verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. Therefore, as Christians, we need to operate and live in such a way that draws attention to how things are supposed to be so that it points people back to the righteousness and glory of God. Think of it this way. As believers in Christ, we're left in this world to show the world that there is a better way. We all have our ideas of what is best and what we want, but Christians are to live in such a way that points others to God through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Verse six and seven. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Can I just be honest? This ending seems a little anticlimactic, right? You bring about all these things, Paul, about being subject to authority and how God's ultimately in charge and how we're to point others back to this order that God has created. And then you tell me, pay your taxes, in fact, I sat down and tried to start doing mine last night, all right? Um, pay your taxes. What is Paul doing here? Remember the context. Re- remember earlier, earlier we had talked about Claudius had expelled a lot of Jews, and, and one of the possible problems was, was because of taxation. 
Many thought that they were too heavily taxed. Others didn't like what the taxes were used for. Some thought it was a corrupt system. This one thing just added to the oppression felt by many living under Roman rule. It would even cause problems within the church. Remember, you have Jews and Gentiles. Jews who were in a foreign land, had no say, had no power. Gentiles who possibly were Roman citizens and experienced things differently than the Jews did. In fact, it had to have caused maybe even a feeling of unfairness. And this feeling of unfairness and oppression was a fuel to the fire in the bones of many of the groups around, groups of zealots that had been among the Jewish people. Remember, the groups of zealots had one mission, to overthrow and destroy those in power so that God could issue in his kingdom and rule. Their only hope was that the governing power would be destroyed so that God could have his way. They saw themselves as instruments of God's wrath. But don't forget the context of the surrounding text. Does this look like genuine love that Paul describes in chapter 12? When when Paul calls this group of people to pay taxes, to pay what is owed to each authority, whether that be a tribute or respect or honor, Paul is calling Christians back to a purpose that we find in chapter 12. It's a call to do good, to do what is right. It is in that kind of living that they would draw their attention of others to their Lord. You see, the the goal was not to destroy our fellow man, but to live out love in such a way that moves them toward the truth. Remember last week, the picture of coals of fire upon their head? That is through the way that we love, the way that we live, uh, the way that we interact in relationship to others, that is through those actions that we begin to heap coals of fire. And that coals of fire is not a stab or a jab at them, but instead it was to move them toward God. It was to move them toward repentance. It's to point them to the better way. To take a step of just simply paying taxes was a pragmatic step. It was a pragmatic step to point others toward the truth, toward repentance, and ultimately toward God with the embracing of Jesus as the Savior that calls them to himself for restoration, redemption, and righteousness. Could you imagine if the opposite were true? That through the actions of the zealots to attack, to destroy, to harm, how many lives would be closed off to the gospel? Instead, Paul's call to pay their taxes was a way to draw their attention away from looking at life through their own personal lens and focus more on looking at life through the lens of the gospel, the good news of the God that had created them, saved them, and commissioned them for his glory. So as we think about all this, what is our takeaway? I believe we can think of lots of historical events that may be coming to question. World War II, Nazi Germany, civil rights, 
civil war, revolutionary war, genocides in other countries. I mean, there's, there's tons of historical events that come to our mind when we read this. And it's right for us to ask the questions. And it's right in some of those moments that intervention had to be made for the sake of justice. But what I'm calling us to is today, instead of us thinking about all the exceptions, can we just think about our own tendencies if we don't keep all this in perspective by looking through the lens of the gospel? You see, if we are not careful, we will allow our political preferences to move us away from gospel mission. Let me say that again. If we are not careful, we will allow political preferences to move us away from the gospel mission. See, it is not it is not through the change of a political system that we accomplish the mission of the gospel. It is not having a certain person in power that we see the accomplishment of the gospel. It is through the bold proclamation of the gospel that God will receive glory and move people's hearts to himself. Regardless of the political power, regardless of governing authority, We have to be a people that proclaim the truth of God and point others to the glory of God so that they may see the grace of God and have faith in the only God who saves his son, Jesus Christ. If we are not careful, we will miss the gospel mission. We see it all over the world today. There are other people, other believers all around this world that do not sit in the same climate, in the same culture that we do, where they're persecuted, they're put to death for the gospel, yet the gospel is thriving and moving, not because their political system has changed, because there are people who proclaim that Jesus is Lord and that our only hope is in him. You see, in those situations, the people of God continue to do good. They continue to speak of the grace and the mercy and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I have to bring it back to us. What do we do? What do we do? First, we remember that God is in control. As we live out our lives, we must retreat constantly to the sovereignty of God. God is always at work doing something. He's always doing something that's going to give him glory. And we must hold on to this truth even when we don't understand it. Number two, we need to submit to governing authorities and be thankful for God's design of them. We need to be mindful of what is good about them and thank God for those things. When it comes to the corrupt nature of governing authorities, we must pray. We must pray constantly and consistently for those who are in places of power, in places of authority that lead us. Oh, church, if we would be a people that would find ourselves praying for those in authority rather than criticizing them or making fun of them. 
What else? Be a good citizen. Pay your taxes. Obey the law. Seek to do good for your neighbor, your community, your country. Serve others out of the love that Christ has shown to you. Engage the processes that our country has established. And engage them in truth and justice and for the common good. If you're a civil leader, lead according to biblical values. But above all things, above all things, give your ultimate allegiance to Jesus Christ our Lord. I wonder, sometimes do we find ourselves talking more about our favorite political candidate than we find ourselves talking about Jesus, the one who saved us, the one who gave his life for us? Can we be a people that is so bent on proclaiming the gospel that we would want even our worst enemy to know it? As the band comes back out, just a challenge to us as a church that we must live under God's authority ultimately and be obedient to him in all things and be subject to the governing authority, authorities in light of our decisions. And we must make those decisions by holding as chief, not our own ideas, not our own opinions, but as chief, the gospel and the mission that God desires all to come to repentance. And that is through the proclamation of the gospel as we live out our lives and we proclaim it to all those around us. Will we hold on to this mission, the mission of the gospel above all things? Even when it comes to how we view life and government, can we live life looking at everything through the lens of the gospel? Can we live in such a way that through our actions, through our kindness, through our mercy, through our love, that others are pointed, not to our own ideas, but to the saving work of Jesus? That others hear and know that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no other thing, entity, or person that saves. Church, will we be a people that speaks constantly about the good news of Jesus Christ? We have a tendency to talk about all sorts of other things. But above all, can we just be a church that talks about Jesus? Because he, he is the only one who saves. I want to pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for your word. God, will you help us just to take a moment to step back away from our feelings and our thoughts and our preferences and just evaluate if we're being a people that is sharing the good news of Jesus. Are we people that's talking about you? Are we a people that has been on doing good for their neighbor? 
God, can, can we just take a good assessment if we're being gospel people? And God, in the areas that we're not, help us to be um, and have a heart of repentance. Help us to hold on to you above all things. God, help us to pray. To pray for our leaders, to pray for our country, to pray for our neighbors, to pray for this church, to pray for our community. God, help us to be a people that bring everything to you in prayer. Because our one desire should be your desires, that all would come to know you, that all would be driven to repentance so they could have life and life to the full through your son, Jesus. God, help us to respond the way you want us to respond. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, would you stand as we worship together and as we respond to the truth of God?